Good morning again. Um, so uh, there's a number of visitors here this morning, and uh, we get into that summery, half-termy kind of bit of the year when we have lots of visitors, which is great. Um, so we've been going through Philippians together, and uh, we are on the penultimate week of Philippians, and then we have more exciting things in store for you. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How much do you really care if your passport is burgundy or blue? How much do you really care? Right, let's have a little vote on it. Who would like a blue passport? Who would like to have a burgundy passport? Who would like to have a purple passport? I'm personally going for really luminous yellow because that means I would never lose it. <laughs> you see, at the 9.15, they all were very obedient and put their hands up, unlike you lot who are hedging your bets. You know what? You might just choose burgundy because you like burgundy. You might just choose blue because you like blue. Of course, it could be that it's a declaration of whether you are a Europhile or a Euro skeptic, but maybe that conversation's for another day. Of course, we have caricatures, don't we, of our national characteristics. Phil is always uh, claiming abuse. <laughs> it's clearly not true. Of course, all English people love queuing, don't we? We just love queuing. In fact, I'm surprised you're not standing in a queue just for the very sake of being in a queue. And of course, it's only the Germans who put their towels on the sunbeds around the swimming pool. I mean, no one else would ever do that, would they? And French people wear striped tops and berries and have a string of onions around their necks at all times, of course, don't they? And all Americans are loud. Maybe I should say that quietly this morning. <laughs> You know, the truth is that they're caricatures of some of our national characteristics, or maybe not even true at all, but they're things that we enjoy laughing about and pointing the finger at other people about. And verse 17 to 19 of this passage may also be a bit of a caricature, really, but Paul says this, he says, For I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Maybe that's a little bit of a caricature of everyone who doesn't follow Jesus, that they are exactly as Paul has described. But the thing that Paul's trying to get at here is that for those of us who are not following Jesus as Lord of our lives, I am the center of my life. I am in the center of it. And in some way, excuse me, I've got a bit of hair. It's annoying me. In some way, consumerism is my God. I am driven by the things that I can acquire, that I think I need, that fill my life with some level of satisfaction. Consumerism, the stuff that I define myself by, becomes my God. My God is my stomach, whether literally or figuratively, 
It's around feeding ourselves to make ourselves feel better about the person we are. We are at the center. And Paul goes on to say that the things that we think are contributing to our glory, the things that we think are our achievements, that are our attributes that would make us more special, more honorable, more glorious, a little bit like all the things that Paul stacked up and said, all these things are to my credit. He says, actually, those things that we think are glorious are actually to our shame. They count for nothing beside knowing Jesus and finding our glory in him. How much are we aligned with our national characteristics? Perhaps we pride ourselves on not being aligned with our national characteristics of barging through every queue and giving up every sunbed, being really quiet. How much are we aligned with the national characteristics of the place that we once belonged to, where we are in the center and consumerism, what we can gain and who we can think we can become are the goal. This is our past, our past citizenship. And I want to take you back to something that Phil spoke about right at the very beginning, or back for the first time for those of you that are visiting this morning, to Philippi. Because Philippi is the place that the letter to the Philippians is written to. And Philippi was a Roman colony, and it wasn't necessarily appreciated by the people of northern Greece in which this Roman colony was plonked. AD 42, about 100 years earlier than Paul went there, it was the setting for one of the greatest battles of the Roman Civil War after the death of Julius Caesar. And the two victorious generals were Antony and Octavian, who would become the future Emperor Augustus, and they defeated Cassius and Brutus. And that was the end of the war. Hooray! <laughs> but at that point, there were many hundreds of Roman soldiers that found themselves in northern Greece. Now, actually, the Romans didn't want all these Roman soldiers to return to Italy, and especially not to Rome, because hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers with nothing to do is not necessarily a helpful thing for a nation. So they said... We'll give you the land around Philippi if you stay here and if you make this place a colony of Rome. So the soldiers said, that's fine with us. It's still sunny here. We'll stay. So they stayed and then other veterans from other battles joined them and their families joined them. And before long, this was a really strong Roman presence speaking Latin in northern Greece. And we know that the Via Ignatia went through there, so it was a really good trade route, and it meant that they could get to port really easily and sail back to Rome for the Christmas holidays. None of you are awake. <laughs> <laughs> and they tried to order civic life so that it matched the way that things were done in Rome. Are you following? So then the latest innovation coming from Rome was the establishment of the imperial cult, where they would worship Caesar, the emperor, as saviour and lord, in case that doesn't sound familiar to you. And that was a further challenge to these early believers, this very early church in Philippi, that now they would also 
because they were a Roman colony, have to worship Caesar as Lord as well. So that's a really important backdrop to all that Paul is talking about here, because in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Suddenly, we maybe understand that a little bit better with the backdrop of this Roman colony, Philippi, in northern Greece. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our inclination, isn't it, is to think that heaven is the real place to which we belong, and one day we'll be there. But that's not what Paul's getting at here. It's what, when the people said, we are citizens of Rome... In Philippi, the expectations of the emperor and the people was that they would bring the culture and rule of Rome to Philippi. So when Paul says, we are citizens of heaven, the implication of that is that we will bring the culture and rule of heaven to the place where we are, i.e. earth. It's not something we're just waiting for in the future, It's also about the reality of life now. And it reminds us of that prayer that we've been quoting a lot recently and we sung some of earlier as well, that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven. That the kingdom and rule of God would be seen on the earth in justice and righteousness and peace and forgiveness and healing and being set free as it is in heaven. We won't see it entirely until we are with him face to face. But we are praying for that reality even now. And our role is to bring in the culture and influence of heaven as citizens of heaven here on earth. Imagine for a moment that things were getting really difficult for the Roman citizens in Philippi. Perhaps there was a local rebellion or they were attacked by the northern tribes. You see, their best hope was that the emperor himself, the one called saviour and rescuer, would come from Rome to Philippi to change their present and somewhat defenceless situation, to defeat their enemies and to establish them there firmly as a colony of Rome itself. The emperor was the ruler of all the known world, so he had the power and authority to do just that. So when Paul goes on in this verse to say, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's what they're thinking about. They're thinking that a colony of Rome expects the emperor of Rome to come and save them. That us as the colony of heaven, the citizens of heaven, can expect that one day our saviour The Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power over all things, will bring everything under his control. And his glory and life and power will fully rule over this earth. And, especially good news, our bodies get transformed. Hallelujah. I am personally looking forward to that. So the question is, who has our allegiance. If you lived in Philippi, it was a very important question. Who had your allegiance? Was it Rome? 
Or was your allegiance still to Greece or to some other tribe? Paul encourages the Christians there to stand firm, not just remaining constant in their faith, but choosing clearly who their allegiance was given to, Jesus or Caesar. Bonhoeffer said these words. He lived during, uh, before and during World War II. Uh, he was a German pastor, and he said this, The life of discipleship can only be maintained as long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. Neither the law, no pers- nor personal piety, nor even the world. The disciple always looks only to his master, never to Christ and the law, Christ and religion, Christ and the world. Only by following Christ alone can he preserve a single eye. No, Bonhoeffer had to make that choice. He could either have been a pastor under the Nazi regime, towing the line, carrying out his pastoral duties in a way that was acceptable to the Nazi regime at the time. So very unable to practice a, a real form of Christianity. But he could have chosen that. Or he chose to be faithful in his allegiance to Christ and was put into a concentration camp and died just a few weeks before the end of World War II. He knew what the cost of his allegiance was. And last week in Indonesia, in a church much like ours, bombs were thrown and many people died. This week, who is their allegiance to Is it still to Jesus, or is it to fear, or is it to the government, local and national, to bow down to them? If you want to, you can hear an interview with the pastor of that church on the Open Doors Facebook page, because their allegiance is still to Jesus, despite it all. In South Sudan earlier this week, and Phil prayed for that, at a Bible college, a Bible training college, in the south, which has been relatively safe, some gunmen came in, they shot dead, 10 people of whom five were children, and they raped the 14-year-old daughter of one of the staff members there. Who is our allegiance to? You know, that's the extreme end, isn't it? But the extreme end covers more of our world today than ever it has done before. And we all have our choices, don't we? We all have our choices. Is my allegiance to Jesus in my workplace when it gets a bit sticky and difficult and challenging? One of our church members, I won't embarrass who that person is, had that choice this week. and She decided that her allegiance to Jesus was more important than the risk associated with the conversation she needed to have. How is our allegiance to Jesus expressed? Because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We hold that passport We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's up to us whether we live like that. And Paul encourages them again to stand firm, to stand firm. And as well as standing firm because of their citizenship in heaven, he encourages them in how they might do that. 
Some of you I know have done Pilates and similar kinds of things like that. And um, one of the things they get you to do right at the beginning is to stand up. Um, you wouldn't think that was that challenging since most of us have been standing up quite a significantly long time at some point in our lives. And, but it's to stand up in a centered way and uh, to feel the secureness of your feet upon the ground and not to be tipped forward and not to be tipped backwards and not to be tipped one side or the other, but to find that central place. And if you think that's easy, you should close your eyes because at that point it becomes significantly more challenging to find your centered, firm place. You have to think about it actually a whole lot more than you would imagine. You have to feel it and you have to practice until it's natural to you. And I think that many of the things that Paul then goes on to talk about, which seem a little bit higgledy-piggledy, it's not a technical theological term, <laughs> are some of the ways in which we find our center and stand firm. So in chapter 1 and verse 27, he talks about contending as one man for the sake of the gospel. And we talked about that Roman image uh, going into battle of the soldiers with their shields all uh, side to side and over the top. And that basically when they were like that, they were virtually invincible, provided that someone didn't break rank. And of course their enemy would be looking for any cracks or divisions to exploit and our enemy does exactly the same. So all the while that we are standing, to quote the wonderful Irish national anthem, shoulder to shoulder, which I really would like to take on for hours, if I'm really honest. Maybe we'd have to change Ireland to England, that's the only problem. All the while we're standing shoulder to shoulder, we are okay. All the while we are holding our shield and the, the next person's holding theirs and someone's holding one over our head, we're okay. But whenever there's cracks and divisions, then the enemy comes in to exploit that. And the example that Paul is using here is the example of Euodia and Syntyche, or however you're supposed to pronounce their names. I've heard several different versions already this morning. These two women, who are possibly friends of Lydia, co-workers in the gospel, now listen, I'm going to stand on my small pedestal for just a moment here. The problem is that these women are remembered because they had a falling out. Take note. I'm sure they didn't realize that they would be remembered because they had a falling out. I'm sure they weren't anticipating that in 2018 we'd be still trying to pronounce their names because they had a falling out. But actually, these two women were co-workers, loyal yoke fellows. You know the vision of the yoke from the oxen? Equal, yoke fellows, one on one side, one on the other side. They worked by Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. They worked along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. And that word for fellow workers is the same word that is used for Epaphroditus, for Timothy, for Silas, for all these key male leaders in the church. And Paul says, remember these two because they are absolutely key in the leadership 
of the church and the expansion of the kingdom of God and the gospel. So I'll get off my pedestal now, but just bear that in mind. So Paul challenges them, challenges them to agree with each other. He doesn't take sides, so it implies that it's probably not a doctrinal issue because when it is, Paul's normally pretty clear on what he thinks about it. He doesn't talk about the issue. He just says, can you just get along with each other? And more often than not, it's personality, isn't it? More often than not, it's particular preferences, you know, the kind of person I am, the kind of person you are, the kind of way we do stuff, the kind of things that we think are important, the kind of way you sit on your chair, the kind of songs we sing, whether we like that song that Phil chose earlier, we didn't like it. it it's those things where we fall out with each other much more often than the more significant doctrinal things. Paul says, resolve these issues with each other because you can't stand firm whilst your relationships with each other are all over the place because it makes you feel all wibbly-wobbly. You know, Matthew's gospel, it's very clear about how we need to do that. It says, if you've got an issue with someone, talk to them. It doesn't say talk to everyone else first or anyone else first, actually. It says talk to them. And if that situation is then resolved, it's resolved, end of. So if you can't do that, then at that point, you maybe get a mate to go with you or somebody you trust or someone whose opinion you think is balanced and helpful in the conversation. And then you go talk again. Only if all of those things don't work with a bit of a sprinkling of prayer and a bit of choosing not to get offended and a bit of love and a bit of understanding, all those things put in the mix. Only then should anyone else in the church know about it. It's really important not to let things fester under the surface because otherwise, 2,000 years on, your name is on a page because you can get on with someone. I mean, maybe they just didn't like the way you put in the milk before the tea or the tea before the milk. I mean, who knows? Or the kind of biscuits they were serving in church that day. You know what? Churches are split over less serious issues. <laughs> We really need to get on with each other. Then he talks about cultivating the right attitudes. And I'm not going to talk lots about this because we already have through Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Sorry, it's not okay to edit out the always. Rejoicing in the Lord. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. 16 times in Philippians, Paul talks about joy. It is our solid anchor in the experiences of our lives. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, we kind of think of gentleness as perhaps a little bit of a weak word, but moderation, graciousness, it's the opposite to contention, to abrasiveness, to self-centeredness, to entitledness. It's choosing to forego retaliation. That doesn't sound quite so weak anymore, does it? In fact, it sounds very courageous and quite challenging and drawing a lot of us in our relationship with Jesus if we're going to let gentleness always be the watchword over our words and our actions. He says the Lord is near. The message is that the Lord is near as he's coming back soon. Do you remember those um, Yellow Pages adverts? They're quite a while back now. And um, 
Then parents had gone out and the kids decided to have a party and they had these precious works of art where they used permanent marker and drew all over the, the paintings and then they created massive scratches on the French polished table. And, uh, and they just realized what the time was. They were calling yellow pages to get the right person to sort out all the issues. You know, this message is to remind us that mum and dad are coming back soon. <laughs> That's not the right theology. That Jesus is coming back soon. And if we live in the light of that, we'll never color in the family heirlooms or cause scratches on the French polished table. It's also that the Lord is near, as in he's just near. He's just near you. He's with you. Where you are, he is near. And then he goes on to talk about finding a place of peacefulness. Anxiety was a way of life for many in the ancient world. There were so many gods and goddesses, and all of them were potentially out to get you for some offense or other. It might even be an offense you don't know about for a god or goddess you'd forgotten about. And it created this culture of anxiety. I think we live in that same culture for different reasons. Anxiety, worry. Almost every person you speak to is worried and concerned and anxious about something. And I think we share many of those things, don't we? And God's peace is a precious gift to us in our worry-driven culture. He says, do not be anxious about most stuff. Unfortunately, he doesn't say that. He says, don't be anxious about anything. It's like the bar, isn't it? <laughs> don't be anxious about anything, but in Everything. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving. It needs the, all of that. The prayer and petition, but the thanksgiving bit, because that reminds you of how God has worked already up to that point. Reminds you of who he is. Present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A deep peace in the midst of the storm. A peace that surpasses, transcends, is more than we can ever understand. I'm sure you've met people and they say, I feel so peaceful. And you think, how can you? You're in the middle of a treatment for chemo, for cancer. You've just, everything in your life is all chaotic. How can you have that peace? But it's a peace that transcends what is humanly acceptable or sensible. And it talks about the peace that guards your heart and mind. And let's remember again that Paul's in Rome, in prison, with Roman soldiers around him. So lots of his imagery comes from that. He said, this peace is like a garrison of Roman soldiers around you. It protects you. It keeps you. And that's the kind of peace that we can expect. Not a kind of fluffy peace that sort of ebbs and flows, but a strong peace that guards round our hearts and our minds. As we lay the things before God, as we bring our prayer and petition to him for all things, that peace guards our minds. And finally, Paul talks about choosing our focus wisely. He says, 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. It's like he got the thesaurus out. And look for good and then put all the other words in as well. I think it calls us to live counterculturally because this list is pretty much opposite to what the media most often presents us and particularly social media, actually, which is often untrue, fake truth, unholy. Our media is, um, what's the word, saturated, I think, with things that are unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, blameworthy. That's what we do, isn't it? Now, I feel so sad, really. I listened to the wedding yesterday, and uh, I thought, he was fantastic. You know, he just went for it. And frankly, how easy it is it to go for it in that context? I mean, he kept going away from the microphone because the microphone tells you you're supposed to stand still, and he wasn't good at that. <laughs> and you could see the people who were kind of just going, oh, we'll just wait till it's over even despite themselves, looking up, looking engaged, laughing, just connecting. I don't know if you heard James Haskell, the rugby player, at the end, he was just overwhelmed, talking about the message that he'd heard. But all over social media today, criticisms. Criticisms of his style, criticisms of the appropriateness, criticisms of why he preached a sermon in a wedding where he'd been asked to preach the sermon. Criticisms that he didn't cover absolutely everything that's in the whole of scriptures in his 13 minutes on quite a challenging day. Now, it's not that nothing of that is worth a conversation, but do we need to do that? Or can we celebrate the positive and the good and the opportunities for the gospel and the conversations that would have occurred on the back of that guy putting himself on the line and choosing to be brave, and a bit different. And I don't know about you, Phil, but the last time I covered everything in a wedding talk, it's not the way, it's not where it happens, is it? You know, there are other things. It just makes me sad, and we need to be those who live counter-culturally and choose a different way, which means we need to live intentionally. How are we going to focus on the good things? when it's actually easier to focus on the bad things? How are we going to celebrate the beauty of our creation and the extreme intricacy and creativity and awe and wonder of our creator? How are we going to choose to see the best, not the worst? How are we going to choose to be positive rather than negative? Because it's all those things living intentionally that help us to get our focus right. And it's living it out daily. It's the small incremental steps and choices that we make to focus on the good, the praiseworthy, the excellent, the pure, those things. Martin Luther made a great quote. Um, he said this, You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. And his point was, you can't stop negative stuff whizzing around, around you. You can't stop what's on the news, what's in your office, what sometimes you hear, what's in the media. But you can make some choices around what nests in your hair. 
for those of you who haven't. <laughs> Steve had a good day yesterday. <laughs> we can choose, can't we? What we allow to grow in our hearts. And we need to feed our minds with what makes our hearts thrive. We need to feed our minds with what makes our hearts thrive. Every time we pick this up and we read some of it, we feed our mind with what makes our heart thrive. Every time we choose to spend time in prayer and worship, however you do that, you feed your mind and so your heart thrives. Every time you engage in a life-giving conversation with somebody and you share stories together and you encourage each other and you talk about what God has done, you feed your mind so that your heart thrives. Every time you choose to listen to the stories of the church across the globe and it compels you to pray and to suffer as if you were one of them, you feed your mind so your heart thrives, focusing on those things. And just finally, Paul says at the end, I just closed my Bible, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> He says here, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And at the beginning of that section that we looked at, it says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And I want to encourage you this morning to choose good examples. To choose good examples. To choose people whose teaching, whose words, whose actions will inspire you, will achieve you to greater things, will challenge you, will encourage you, will enable you to become the best version of you that you can become. Choose examples from Scripture. Choose examples from the story of the early church. Choose examples from people who've served God throughout the years and read their stories and be inspired by their examples. But also this, be a good example. What do you want that little boy to be doing when he is following you? That's what Phil was talking about last week. To be good examples, to be disciples. <laughs> to be a good example... Because Paul could say, do what I do, follow me. And to some measure, we need to be able to say that too, to inspire others to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven.